You're listening to the Formation Church Podcast. Formation exists to be a safe place for hurting people to find healing relationship with Jesus. For more information about the ministry of Formation in Salt Lake City, Utah, visit our website at formationslc.com. Today, uh, we're going to talk about the nature of the spiritual journey. Uh, we're in a series called A Coal in the Fire that is all about a particular type of community that we desire to build here at Formation. And today, uh, we are going to talk about the nature of the spiritual journey. And lately, I've, just, I've been thinking a lot about how important it is in our efforts to build formative friendship that we agree not only on the destination to which we are headed in these relationships, but also the route that's going to be taken for our shared journey. The reality is any shared journey demands both an agreed-upon destination and route. Any shared journey demands an agreed-upon destination and route. And so think about it like this, like imagine that we all decided that we want to go somewhere together this afternoon. Now the first thing that we would have to decide is where it is that we want to go. And so after some discussion, let's say we decide that we all want to go to Park City for mediocre overpriced food, okay? <laughs> now, at that point, we've agreed upon our destination, right? We know where we're going. We're going to Park City. That's the destination. But agreeing on the de destination is only the first step. If it is truly going to be a shared journey that we go on together, we also have to agree upon a shared route. Because from here, as, I mean, uh, as I'm aware, there's at least three different routes that we could take to get there. We could take I-80 East. If the weather allows, we could take Guardsman Pass if you really want to take your life into your own hands. You could even go down through Provo Canyon and then up north to Park City. So at the risk of stating the obvious, if we cannot agree on a route, then we won't be on a shared journey. For instance, if some of us decide that we're going to take 80, but a bunch of us decide we're going to take the scenic route through Provo Canyon, but then a few of us are like, you know what, we're going to snowshoe through Guardsman Pass. If we all take these various routes, then we aren't on, on the same journey, even if we long to arrive at the same destination. A shared journey demands both an agreed-upon destination and an agreed-upon route. Now, I think that we all know that this is painfully obvious for any physical journey. Like, even as you hear that illustration, you're like, well, yeah, obviously that makes sense. But I think, sadly, this is a reality that we often overlook on our spiritual journey. And make no mistake, we are all here because we are on a spiritual journey. Someone might have invited you, even strong-armed you. Maybe someone tricked you, and they're like, you want to get donuts and coffee? And they're like, gotcha, it's church, okay? <laughs> Regardless of how you got here, <laughs> we are all, don't do that, by the way. That's a terrible <laughs> means of inviting people to church. Just tell them we're going to church, okay? So we want this, uh, we are all on a shared journey, uh, or on a spiritual journey, and we want and we need our spiritual journey to be a shared one. I have said this in different ways over and over and over again, but the spiritual journey is never meant to be a solo one. It's meant to be shared with others. And for this to be our experience, we need to agree on both the destination and the route. Now, I believe that virtually every true Bible-believing Christian in some sense, in general, agrees on the destination to which we are heading. We 
desire to be formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. That's the destination. It isn't just about like, okay, I, I walked down an aisle, I prayed a prayer, somebody dipped me in some water, and now I get like this golden ticket to go to heaven. That is not ultimately the destination of the Christian faith in the here and now. The destination that we are after is we want to be formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others. That's our destination. But you know that since Jesus called his very first disciples to follow him, there has been both dispute and disagreement on the route to that destination since the very beginning. And so the problem with that is if if we're to have any hope of really building formative friendship, it's essential that we have not only that shared destination, but also a shared route to get there. Formative friendships require us to have agreement on the nature of the spiritual journey so that we can actually move toward our desired destination as one. Now, the good news with this is that Jesus helps us understand the nature of the spiritual journey in his response to these two disciples that we've been spending time with in Luke 24. Remember, we've been describing them as in a, in a, in a state of liminality, and their liminal state, the one that Cleopas and this second unnamed disciple find themselves in, at the heart of that was a misunderstanding of the very nature of the spiritual journey. See, they believed it was going to be one thing. They wanted it to be one thing. They expected it to be one thing. They anticipated that it would be one thing. But in reality, Jesus shows them and us that it was entirely different than they anticipated. And so together this morning, we want to lean back into this story and invite Jesus to define for us the nature of the spiritual journey. Now, we're going to jump back into Luke 24. So if you have a Bible and you want to open, uh, that's where we're going to be. Luke 24. Luke is the third gospel in the New Testament. So it's Matthew, Mark, Luke. We're going to pick up in verses 25 and 26. But again, just to recap, so we remember the context. All of this story takes place on the first Easter morning. So Jesus died on Friday, was crucified. His disciples had witnessed all of that happening. They witnessed him being buried, and they had spent that entire weekend just in a state of shell shock. Everything that had been for them was over, and everything that was to come was terribly unclear. And so they are in this liminal state, stuck between these two seasons. Further complicating this, that first Easter morning, some of the women who also followed Jesus came and said that they had been to Jesus' tomb and found it empty, which would have been big time weird, and that additionally they had seen a vision of angels telling them that Jesus was alive. And so all of this is going on, everybody rejects that witness, and these two disciples begin to make their way home to Emmaus. And on their journey, they're discussing all of this, everything that had taken place. And then in the midst of their conversation and journey, Jesus approaches them and and enters in, but they don't recognize him. So what we've already read, like what we looked at last week, is them explaining to Jesus, here's everything that took place, and now we finally get to hear Jesus respond. And so look with me at verse 25. It says, Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now, there's a couple of things uh, that we need to note in these verses. The first is, I think it's really important and worth stating that when Jesus refers to them as foolish and slow to believe, please understand he is not being harsh to them and he is not being uh, insensitive, insensitive to them. To, to call someone foolish, like the word that we use to translate, doesn't mean he's not going like, come on, dummies. He's not being mean to them. 
He is not shaming them in any way. See, the word foolish uh, that we translate, uh, the English word we translate as foolish comes from a Greek word that means mindless, or more specifically, not marked by the use of reason. So what he's saying is, man, you guys really, you're, you're not thinking clearly about any of this. He also says that they are being slow to believe, which means slow to understand or to learn. It means lacking intellectual acuity. And so Eugene Peterson, when he was translating the message, he translated these two phrases as thick-headed and slow-hearted. That's what Jesus brings to them. And the reason that Jesus leans in here as deeply as he does is because the response of these disciples reveals that they had misunderstood the entire nature of the spiritual journey. All of that, despite the fact that Jesus had spent three full years pointing out that this is exactly what the Old Testament prophets had promised. But unfortunately, as is so often the case for all of us, their their expectations regarding the Messiah and the nature of their spiritual journey with him, those expectations ran so deep in them that they refused to hear what Jesus and the prophets had been trying to make plain. And there's a lesson in this for us. And the lesson is this. It's hard not to only see what we want to see. That's hard to do. It's hard to not only see what we want to see. And so think about it like, like I'm, I'm kind of like this around my house, meaning I tend to see what I want to see and I tend to overlook what I don't want to see. Now in general, thankfully, by God's grace, our house has been very well cared for by past owners and so it's in relatively great shape. But as with all houses that aren't like brand new and built by you, there are parts that are dated and there's parts that need repair. So for instance, we've got like some wooden siding on our deck that's warping. We've got this patio in the back that's cracking more and more due to the ever-shifting Utah ground. Uh, We have some areas that we'd really like to update, but from my vantage point, that's like pretty much about it. Now, if you were to go upstairs and you were to ask Tammy, who's up in kids right now, I'm, I'm confident she'd have like a much longer list than what mine is because she chooses to see these things so much more clearly than I do. See, I tend to see what I want to see. So I want to see everything that's great so that I don't have to deal with everything that's not. And my point in this is that when it came to the nature of their spiritual journey with Jesus, these disciples were more like me around my house than they were like Tammy. Despite Jesus' many attempts to tell them exactly what was going to happen, they only saw and only heard what they had wanted to see and hear. For instance, do you know that Jesus in the Gospels predicted his death to a T three times? I'll I'll read you the first one, just in your case you're like, well, sometimes Jesus used parables that weren't super clear. Not here. Listen, in Mark 8, verse 31, this is the first time Jesus predicts his death. It says, then he began to teach them it was necessary, exact same language, it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and rise after three days. At least three times, he sat these people down going, all right, here's what's going to happen. And despite the clarity of that, they could not hear any of that. 
And this isn't the only place in Mark 9, 30 to 32, and then again in Mark 10, 32 to 34, Jesus says the same thing over and over again. But despite all Jesus' teaching to the contrary, they still believed that Jesus was going to be some sort of like political military messiah that was going to remove their many burdens placed on them by Rome. So they expected a messiah who would make their lives easier, not more difficult. And you would think, because of his clarity and because of his consistency, that they would have been totally prepared for the events surrounding Jesus' death and burial. You would have thought that at that moment of his crucifixion, that they would have sat there appalled and heartbroken, watching his suffering, but with this deep hope like, oh yeah, he told us this is exactly what was going to go down. And three days, the clock's ticking, he's going to be back. But that was not their response in any way. Because they misunderstood the nature of the spiritual journey, they were not prepared. And so one more time, in this conversation, as they walk along this road to Emmaus, Jesus makes it plain for them. Notice again in verse 26, he echoes Mark 8, saying, "'Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things?' Now, their immediate answer, had they replied, would have been no. We, like, we didn't think he was going to suffer any of these things. But what they did not understand was that Jesus' suffering was an essential element of his mission in this world. It was not a mistake. It was not just bad luck. It was not a detour. Suffering and death were the route to his resurrection and to theirs. He suffered and he died for them, and he suffered and he died for us. It was an essential part of his mission. The Apostle Paul said it like this. He said, God made the one, speaking of Jesus, who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then again in Romans 5.8, he plainly states, Christ died for us. Now here's the really uncomfortable part. Jesus was not the only one who suffered. Jesus was not the only one who suffered. His suffering meant suffering for them. They are suffering as they make this journey because Jesus had suffered as well. So it wasn't just Jesus who suffered, it was them, and he modeled suffering as a normal part of the spiritual journey. Ruth Halley Barton says it like this. She said, as Jesus interpreted the events of the previous day, he was signaling to them that we too must die if we desire to be raised to new life in Christ. We too, she says, must lay down anything that is a hindrance to us spiritually so that we can walk in newness of life. So it wasn't just Jesus' path, it's our path. And so when we take all of this together, here's the big idea. The spiritual journey is one of ongoing death, burial, and resurrection. If you want to walk with Jesus, you're like, I wonder how this is going to go. What's this going to be like? That's what it's going to be like. This ongoing process of death, burial, and resurrection. According to both the example and the very words of Jesus, this is the nature of the spiritual journey. This is his prescribed route to our desired destination. How are we formed in the image of Christ for the sake of others? by surrendering to this ongoing process of death, burial, and resurrection. Now, the problem is Jesus' disciples did not want to hear that then, and we, in turn, don't want to hear that now. In fact, we we, we want Jesus to make our lives easier. 
We want Jesus to make our lives more comfortable. We want him to remove our challenges, not exacerbate them as life with him so often does. And so because of this dissonance that exists between our desire on the one hand and what Jesus displayed to be true on the other, we have to really understand the nature of this journey that we're on. And so let's press into this a little bit more. The nature of the spiritual journey has often been explained as comprising four stages. And these four stages are interesting because they sum up both the spiritual journey as a whole, as well as the countless seasons that we walk through. And these four stages are awakening, purgation, illumination, and union. Awakening, purgation, illumination, and union. And so if you're looking for a great book on all this, I can't over-recommend a book called Invitation to a Journey by M. Robert Mulholland Jr. In that book, he breaks this all down in detail, but I just want to give you kind of a high-level summary so that we can have a working understanding, again, of the nature of this journey that we're all on, okay? So any amount of spiritual growth, any amount of spiritual breakthrough in your life always starts with the same thing. It always starts with awakening. Through a variety of means, the Holy Spirit makes us aware of a particular longing or an area of our lives that is actually hindering our ability to flourish in the way that he created us to. And so this happens in the initial sense at our conversion. When we make the decision, when we realize, like, I am, I am estranged from relationship with God, and the way back to that is through faith in Jesus. That initial awakening, that happens at conversion, but it continues to happen as the Spirit of God makes us aware of particular areas of unlikeness to Christ in our lives. And so here's the thing. There is suffering even at this first stage. We hear the word awakening and we're like, oh, that sounds so attractive and it sounds so compelling. And the reality is there's suffering even in this initial phase. It's uncomfortable. It's painful even at times to become aware that there are things in our lives that we love so much more than we love Jesus. And if you've not embraced that reality, let me be the one to tell you in love, there are things in your life that you love so much more than you love Jesus. And the same thing is true for me. It's true for all of us. So it's uncomfortable and painful to become aware of that. This first stage of awakening also poses a threat to what has been. And even if what has been is dysfunctional and unhealthy, it's still known. So awakening signals that change is necessary. And change, as we all know, is scary and uncomfortable. And so moving from this first stage to the second means embracing that invitation, despite the, the discomfort that is going to come with us. And that second stage that we move to is this stage that spiritual writers have traditionally called purgation. Now, purgation is the process of, of bringing our behavior and our attitudes and our desires into increasing harmony with our growing understanding of what the Christ-like life is all about. So whereas awakening is about awareness, purgation is actually about taking the trusting action necessary to align our lives with the life of Christ. And so the way that it works is the Spirit gives us the grace of awareness and then the grace to respond to that awareness in a way that transforms us. And provided that we continue to receive this grace and run toward Him, we move to the third stage of illumination. 
Now, this is a stage at which we start to recognize the fruit of the difficulty that comes with recognizing areas of Christ's likeness, of unlikeness to Christ, and receiving the grace necessary to respond appropriately. And that fruit is things like greater freedom to live for God, greater awareness of his presence with us, greater awareness of his love for us. It's often marked by deeper and more frequent prayer and an increased concern for all of the things that concern God. And all of this culminates in a fourth stage of deeper union with God. This is a place of great peace and contentment, less focus on oneself, and most importantly, deeper intimacy with God. There is security here. There's peace here. And there is satisfaction here as we come to truly know God experientially. Now again, these four stages describe the spiritual life as a whole, but then also these individual seasons that we go through. So in various areas of life, you can be in like multiple stages at the same time. So I know that some of this might feel a little confusing. So again, make sure you text any specific questions that you have in, and I'll do my best to explain this to whatever degree I'm able to. But but here's two things we have to understand in all of this. The first is, this is the nature of our journey. The spiritual journey is not an easy one. I don't know if you've noticed this, it's also not a comfortable one. And it's never going to be easy. It's never going to be comfortable all of the time because it is one of ongoing death, burial, and resurrection. And secondly, all of this is essential in our efforts to build formative friendships. And here's why. We have to understand that our calling is not to take others out of the difficulty of their journey, but to simply be with them in the midst of it. And that might sound subtle. I promise you that's very significant. Our job in relationship, because we have a very, and I think this is a particularly Western mentality, we have a very fix-it mentality. Bring your problem, I'm going to listen like a good friend, and we're going to solve it. And so much of, like, There are many times in the scriptures we don't see Jesus do that. We just see him be with people in the midst of their difficulty. Jesus doesn't promise us to remove all of the challenge and difficulty. In fact, he promises the opposite. I was reading this morning in John's gospel. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world, but make no mistake, in this world, you are going to have trouble. And so it's our calling not to take everybody in our life out of the difficulty of their journey, but to be with one another in the midst of it. So so think back to Mark 8 that I just read a few minutes ago where Jesus predicted his death for the first time. I don't know if you remember that full story. The part that I didn't get to was that Peter, after hearing that, comes to Jesus Jesus just said, here's exactly what's going to happen. Peter goes, oh, I don't think so. He grabs Jesus. The text says he pulls Jesus aside. And specifically, the word the text uses is Peter begins to rebuke the Son of God. It's an amazing scene, okay? Do you ever feel like, "Mm, I'm not sure my prayer life's clean enough? Well, unless you've rebuked Jesus to his face, you're doing just fine, okay? So Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. So Peter's like, Jesus, why? Why would you say these things? All this suffering and death that you're predicting, that doesn't fit with the journey that we want to take with you. And I don't know if you remember this, but this is how Jesus responds. Couldn't have felt great. He says, get behind me, 
Satan. And here's the reason that he gives. He says, you are not thinking about God's concerns. You are thinking about human concerns. If we are going to be good spiritual companions to one another, we have to learn to be in seasons of suffering together rather than always trying to take one another out of them. For another biblical example, think about the story of Job. You'd think, as Job is in this terribly dark night of his soul and his three friends come, you'd think, man, that's what I want. When I'm struggling, I want my friends to come and to just be with me. I don't know if you've read the story. Job's friends suck from start to finish. And do you know primarily why? Because the only thing they do is they try to explain away and solve his problem. They refuse to just be with him in the midst of it. They blame God. They blame him. They try to explain it. Like it's just, it's an absolute dumpster fire of friendship. Because they couldn't just be with him in the midst of it. So as we get ready to close, I believe that Jesus' words here remind us that if we were to dispel, 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 distill, I'll get there, okay? <laughs> Three's a charm. If we were to distill the spiritual journey to one single word, my argument would be that word should be surrender. Because in the spiritual journey, we are invited to surrender our need for control over and over and over again. We are invited to surrender our need for a comfortable life. We surrender our need for ease. We surrender our expectations. We surrender our insistence that everything must go according to our plan. The lesson that we learn from Jesus here is that it is only in our decision to surrender, only in our decision to willfully die to everything in us that resists trusting him, that we find true, transformed, and resurrected life. Jesus invites us to embrace the way of surrender, both in our own journey and as we journey with others. So that means like as we step into the open with one another, as we get honest about where Jesus is inviting us to surrender, our primary intent is not to remove one another from that struggle. Instead, we choose to be with one another in the midst of it, just like Jesus does with us. The struggle is not a problem to solve. It's a journey to embrace. And so if we're going to experience the transforming resurrection of Jesus within us, we have to make the decision over and over and over again to die with him as well. And so let's surrender to this uncomfortable journey together. Will you pray with me? Jesus, there's nothing about any of this that is particularly encouraging. These are some very hard words from you, and your, your ministry is and, and was filled with hard words to hear. They aren't what we want so much of the time. And so, Lord, you have, you have said that, that suffering was not just your path, but suffering and difficulty and testing and trial, that it's, it's our path, too, 
This is the nature of the journey that you have invited us on. It is not an easy one. But I also thank you that you have promised to be with us on it. Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to suffer and to die in our place so that you could rise again. So that you could not only model for us the way of life with God, but that you could actually make it possible for us to embrace and to join you on this journey. And so, Lord, I just pray over this room. I pray over everyone listening. Lord, if there is anyone here who has not heard that before or who has not heard about your sacrifice in their place and made the decision to surrender their life to you, I pray that right now you would awaken their hearts to faith, that you would draw them to yourself, that they would say yes to you by your grace through faith. And Lord, for those of us that have made that decision, there are always areas of awakening taking place in us. Things that that you make us aware of that are hindering our experience of life with you and life with one another. And I pray that you would give us the grace to say yes to all that you invite us to. Comfort us, strengthen us, empower us for this journey that you have called us to. And help us to be good friends who are with one another in the midst of that struggle rather than always trying to help everybody escape from it. Help us to be with one another the way that you are with us. In Jesus' name, amen.